Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. We've got a, a, a Renaissance man on the show this week. Michael J. Gelb can talk about meditation as it relates to everything from creativity to uh, personal development, to organizational development, to innovation. He's written a bunch of books, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Seven Steps to Genius Every Day, uh, also Creativity on Demand, Innovate Like Edson. Anyway, you get a sense that he's a prolific guy who who thinks about a whole range of things. Oh, and he also talks a lot about posture as, as it relates to meditation and mindfulness. So I got a lot out of this interview. I think you will, too. That's coming up in just a second. Uh, we're going to do your voicemails in a, in a moment. First, though, just want to give you, uh, 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 as an item of business here, I want to give you a sense of some new content we're working on over at 10% Happier, the app. Uh, we've got a new meditation up that you should check out. It's with my my friend Jeff Warren, uh, the fantastic meditation teacher on, uh, uh, he calls it holiday hilarity. Um, I think he's saying that with his tongue in in his cheek. This is a stressful time for all of us, and uh, Jeff's got a meditation specifically designed to help you deal. Um, Also, just wanted to let you know that we we were just in the studio with uh, Joseph Goldstein, the amazing Joseph Goldstein, who still hasn't been on the show. Uh, We're going to be putting up a new course um, uh, on the app from him. That's coming up soon. Uh, All right, let's get your voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Don. My name's Joel, um, from the UK, but living in California. Uh, so I started meditating about three years ago, thanks to your book, so thanks for that. And I've seen some, some major benefits and some big changes in my life because of um, starting meditating, which is great. But I've also had some strange experiences also. Yeah, I, I'm a science kind of loving guy, as I know are you, and, uh, and I've kind of struggled to reconcile these a little bit or interpret them. So things like when you're meditating strong sensations of body vibrations or rushing energy or even on occasion I've been deeply meditating and I find my head sort of moving around involuntarily and I can't explain these things using science and I can't reconcile them and they're weird and I wondered and I don't hear anyone speaking about these and I wondered if you've experienced any of these um, and how you interpret or reconcile them um, but thanks again. From what I understand what you're describing is incredibly common. There's a name for it in the ancient uh, Indian language of Pali, which the Buddha is is said to have spoken. Uh, P-T, P-I-T-I, uh, sometimes translated as, I think it's rapture. I think that's the translation. Anyway, uh, it's just, I, I use it, and I hope I'm using it correctly, just to describe kind of positive body sensations that come when the mind gets concentrated. And as my meditation practice has developed uh, and I've gotten a little bit more concentrated, I don't want to just overstate my level of concentration, I, there are times when uh, you can get everything from sort of tingles to sort of an involuntary rocking back and forth. And it's a little weird at first. Um, it's kind of, in my, in my experience, uh, pleasant in discussing this with meditation teachers, it's usually uh, a sign that your, you know, your mind is concentrated. The level of discursive random thinking has gone down a little bit, and that can have um, interesting effects on the body and mind. 
the one thing that jo- the aforementioned Joseph Goldstein has said to me before is with the rocking back and forth, because that, that can be a little pleasant, you might notice that you're feeding it subconsciously, and you might look look for that and see if, if you're feeding it, and, and, and you probably don't need need to do that. So anyway, uh, I would say not something to freak out about. I don't know what the scientific explanation for it is. That would be a great question for us to pursue on this podcast. And, and so mental note, let's pursue that. Why uh, scientifically does the body uh, and mind uh, – do the body and mind react in kind of interesting ways to increase concentration? Um, but I get so uh, without without being able to ask you further questions to diagnose what's going on with you from my somewhat informed uh, position – uh, it sounds to me like this is a completely normal development and probably a healthy one in the course of your meditation practice. So onwards, sir. Voicemail number two. Here we go. Hi, Dan. I'm, my name is Tatiana. I'm a huge fan since a very long time. I'm calling from Switzerland. So I have a question. How do you combine meditation, being present in the moment, mindful, with making plans for the future? So, for example, if I want to make a career or I strive for something, I realized that it has also something to do with attachment to the results. So what's your experience been like? Would love to to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Thanks Tatiana. I've wrestled with this mightily. But the answer I don't think I don't think the answer is that complicated. First of all, you can plan. I mean every, any planning you're doing will will take place in the present moment. And so you can be as mindful and as aware as possible when you're uh, making your plans. Obviously, you're going to have to start thinking about the future and learning from the past in that process, but you can continually touch in from a basic blocking and tackling meditation standpoint as you're doing that or anything. You can always touch back into the present moment to be a little meditation teachery there by uh, being in touch with your body, being in touch with what you're seeing, hearing. Any number of basic meditation techniques that we all know, or we I hope we all know, that you can use to make sure you're kind of giving right now a little bit of a kiss while you're doing uh, the planning. Uh, the other thing about planning is I think it's <laughs> – you have to do it. Um, uh, I, I, I don't think having a meditation practice means that you should be perpetually present. I mean, it would be great if you could. Uh, that's That's not happened to me. Uh, so uh, the way I approach it is, see, yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of planning and plotting and stress and walking around pacing and thinking about the angles and how things are going to play out and, and blah, 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 that, that you have to do in order to have a a healthy career. And I would not want to discourage you from doing any of that. What What I find, the old Joseph Goldstein expression that he mentioned to me when I first met him on retreat back in 2010 uh, that has been just incredibly helpful in this process is on the 87th time that you're running through all the scenarios in your head, maybe ask yourself the question, is this useful? And that little mantra, is this useful? Just giving yourself permission to do the plotting and planning you need to do to have a healthy, successful career, but then throwing in that little mantra of, is this useful when you notice yourself going down the rabbit hole I, in my experience, really helps me w- walk that uh, line between doing what I need to do in order to, you know, survive and stay afloat in, in, a, in, in my case, a pretty cutthroat career 
and also um, not make myself uh, miserable and and everybody else around me miserable. And finally, you mentioned uh, non-attachment to results. You know, I, I, I wrote about this in my first book. I, I It's easier said than done, but I certainly attempt to do it to the best of my ability, which is you just to recognize that we live in a universe where most of things are out of our control. So we can do a bunch of work on whatever it is we're working on. We can think about our career and try to, you know, network and uh, go to the right school and get the right internships, whatever it is. But you, you, you can't control all the outcomes. That's just, that's just the deal. So non-attachment to results is the only sane way to proceed. Again, easier said than done. I wish I did it more than I do. But as a North Star, it's a pretty healthy one. So great question, Tatiana. I wish you the best of luck. Um, and uh, I hope the foregoing has been to call out or to echo Joseph's phrase. I hope the foregoing has been useful. All right, let's get to Michael Gelb, uh, our guest this week. Um, here's just a couple lines from his bio. He is the world's leading authority on the application of genius thinking to personal and organizational development. He's also a pioneer in the fields of creative thinking, executive coaching, and innovation, innovative leadership. It's a long way of saying he uh, uh, works with individuals and corporations, including major ones like DuPont and, and Microsoft and Nike, on helping people be awesome. Uh, he's a professional speaker. He's an executive coach. He's uh, written a bunch of books. I listed some of them earlier. Also, this is of great interest to me. He's uh, a practitioner of the Alexander Technique, which is not named after my son. It's a, a, a way to get people, especially people in performance positions, to have better posture. And that's of course, has a huge mindfulness component. So here he is, Michael Gelp. Nice to meet you. Pleasure. As I told you before we started rolling, I am uh, woefully – I wouldn't even say underinformed. I would just say completely uninformed about you. You came through a friend who recommended you in the, the most lavish of possible terms. Mm. So I listened to this friend. She's very smart. So uh, I'm really glad to have you here. And I know you're interested in a lot of things that I actually don't know much about. So I'm excited to learn. Lovely. Long way of saying welcome. Yeah, thank you. So uh, I always start with this. The only question I plan in advance is the first one, which is how did you come to meditation in the first place? Mm. I was 19. I was in college and I was studying political science because I thought maybe we could just figure out how to make the world less crazy. What year was this? Uh, this was 1972. Yeah. Uh, and so the world at that time seemed – totally divided, uh, really filled with stress, kind of like today. <laughs> I was going to say it sounds familiar. <laughs> it sounds familiar. And I quickly realized that political science wasn't really much of a science and people seemed to be polarized and not really thinking. So I switched to psychology and I was figuring, okay, let's understand the mind and how we can open and shift people's minds so they can be better able to think, actually think about real issues. And that was fascinating. I love psychology, but it seemed academic. It seemed kind of limited. I, my professors were wonderful and brilliant, but they didn't seem to me to be really fully integrated people. So I switched to philosophy, which also was really cool. I love probing the great questions. and uh, But that also, they couldn't back it up. Uh, so... I discovered a group uh, that was meditating, and I started going on meditation retreats uh, my 19th birthday, 
What flavor of meditators? <laughs> it was the Baskin and Robbins of meditation. <laughs> it was all kinds of different flavors. No, it was uh, it was actually with a group. The the person who led the group had been the secretary to G.I. Gurdjieff. Oh, uh, who was that? Was he Turkish? Uh, Armenian, Turkish, uh, who uh, was this amazing uh, teacher of meditation, spirituality, uh, self-awareness. And they had a group. This guy had helped uh, – was the secretary to Gurdjieff and helped write uh, his greatest book known as All and Everything. And so I used to go every weekend and we would learn self-awareness and we would just sit and be – present, which did not come naturally to me at all. <laughs> My mind still tends to go in a zillion different directions all at once. But it was such a wonderful contrast. I thought, that's the place to look for the answers that I am am seeking. So that was the beginning. And how did it go from there? Well, from there, I thought nothing's more important than understanding consciousness. So... I actually finished college in three years so I could go off to England where I spent 10 months at a residential school to study the spiritual traditions of the world with an amazing genius who had pretty much mastered and integrated all of them. And it's called the International Academy for Continuous Education. What was her or his name? His name was J.G. Bennett. He had been a, an officer in World War I, the British Army. He got blown up and found himself, found his consciousness floating above his body, which was in the, in the trench. And eventually he recovered. And he thought, well, that's kind of fascinating. It sort of shifted his whole world because he had pretty much a conventional orientation up until that point. Later, he was posted as the British consul to Turkey, and he was fluent in Turkish. He, was, he spoke 11 languages, and Turkish was one of them. So he started to meet people who seemed to be able to explain this experience to him. They were various Sufi teachers. So he began, became an initiate of uh, Sufi tradition. And then long before it was a cartoon in The New Yorker, he traveled to India climbed a mountain, met a guru, and asked, you know, what is the secret of enlightenment and so on? And he was able to do this in whatever language was necessary because he could speak uh, Hindi and he was familiar with all of the the languages. He brought back that wisdom and really his whole life was devoted to this quest, but he also was a mathematician who – became head of coal research for Britain during World War II. It was a very accomplished, brilliant, scientific mind. But the driving force of his life was to understand consciousness, to understand who we are, why we're here, how do you make your life meaningful and purposeful. So here's this opportunity to go spend 10 months with, I figure, what's more important than knowing why we're here, than why I'm here? What is consciousness? I'm going to go find out <laughs> if I possibly can. Uh, and it was a phenomenal uh, 10 months. Uh, we had a Buddhist monk, uh, abbot of a Cambodian monastery, who was in residence and 
taught us meditation every evening. And it was, you know, we, we, we fasted once a week. We had days of total silence. A lot of what people call mindfulness practices now, we, it was just part of what we did. And he would, every afternoon, he would give a talk and he would cross-correlate the great spiritual texts of the world and talk about what they really meant in a practical way. So it was an unbelievable opportunity. Having said that, he also had an amazing gift. And I found this gift in many of the most potent teachers I've met. And the gift is they create this mirror that cuts through all of your rubbish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and oh my God, it was just torture. Uh, it just, because I, like I was there, you know, I thought my, my dream, my ideal was you know, get enlightened, study spirituality, learn about all this, uh, be inwardly free. But what I, you know, I became aware of, I was so attached and identified to my physical desires, to my egotism. I mean, it was just highlighting, I, I, you know, we were there, one of the things we would do is try to cultivate deeper perception. And I used to laugh at myself because the perception that I got good at cultivating was I could tell the biggest piece of toast in the breakfast line from you know, really far away because I was just hungry the whole time. I remember meditating. They weren't with, feeding you enough? No, you know, it was, it was uh, um, sort of, uh, it wasn't real asceticism, but it wasn't lavish. Uh, minimalist. Minimalist, minimalist, yeah. yeah. And you're a 21-year-old kid. Oh, you're my yeah. God. It just, I, I mean, never forget, I'm meditating, so there's, there's this wonderful Cambodian monk we just called him Bonte, which means monk, and Mr. Bennett, who was this very powerful and, and, and wonderful figure. And we're in this meditation. And I, I just remember seeing a hamburger. <laughs> like, please, just give me a hamburger. <laughs> uh, but there's something, you know, there's something about uh, – like how we take these experiences of humiliation because it was humiliating, but in a, in a way that turned out to be wonderful because I, I eventually reached a point. Uh, I went to Mr. Bennett. Uh, I requested an interview because that wasn't a normal part of, you had to make a special request to come and see him. And I went and I told him, I said, look, I'm crawling out of my skin here. I mean, you know, I'm so not spiritual. I'm so not, uh, this is not working for me. I mean, I'm anxious and and self-obsessed and all this stuff. And Sounds like it's working to me. <laughs> well, that was, well, that was the funny thing. Is it was great because, first of all, I'll, I'll never forget this because he he, uh, he really listened and he said, first he said something like, yes, that's true. <laughs> you know, like, uh, but, but then he said, uh, um, he said, what, what I remember, the specific thing I remember him saying was, the work of transformation is in your essence. It is your very nature. And it's just working. You know, what I got from this, not his exact words, but what I got from this, it's just, this is just working through this individual uh, with this drama and this story and this uh, uh, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, and I felt this alignment with that inner working, that inner presence. And I, 
I experienced this wonderful sense of peace and and freedom and uh, in that moment in that well for the next three months because this happened three months before this course ended so for the last three months of this this is in the English countryside in the Cotswolds exquisitely beautiful place and I'd say probably for the longest stretch of time in my life uh, I, I was just felt this sense of of buoyancy and peace and inner light and loving kindness. And I was, we learned this uh, Sufi meditation is called the zikr. And it's, it's a breathing uh, practice. It's like a ujjayi breath in uh, yoga. There's all sorts of different variations of it. Uh, but this, this one was very powerful, very simple. And it was happening spontaneously the whole time for the last three months mm. of this. Just because but, of this one conversation? Uh, well, the, we have been studying all this stuff for the previous seven months, but it's just after that one con- conversation, I just stopped worrying. Uh. It just – and it felt like it, it all was just flowing through me. Yeah, so it's like you had all the learning and the practice, the pr- doing the practice and then intellectually absorbing the ideas – you were blocking a little bit through your own neuroticism. Like he lot. points out. He points <laughs> out this is okay. This is human, or part of your human condition at the very least, to be the way you are. And then you were like, "Yeah, I'm okay. I'm not going to try so hard and worry about these hangups." And then all the all of a sudden, that stuff comes through. That's that's kind of it. Yeah. And and then he said something I think was also really wise when the when the ten months came to an end. He said, uh, "Don't." try to do any of the practices that you've learned here. He said, just let it all go and then see what emerges naturally to you. Like he didn't want to, he was very smart. He didn't want to create people out there doing some thing, some system that they were imposing on the authentic selves. Rather, he said, be receptive and see what's really yours. See what has really been integrated into your life. So, so have you built a career subsequently in mindfulness, meditation, spirituality? Is that everything you've done has flowed through that lens? Well, uh, that's up until recently. It's that's been my the the secret underpinnings of everything I do. So I knew that uh, I was going to figure out a way to express what I learned and share what I learned. And I wasn't sure exactly how, because the next thing that happened to me was a kind of a panic. And it was, okay, cool. Uh, you know, I've been on this metaphorical mountaintop for almost a year and had these f- fabulous experiences. I knew I wasn't a monk ascetic type, so I wasn't going to go live in a spiritual community or go to India or anything like that. I saw my friends had dysentery. I said, I'm not going to India. <laughs> uh, I said, uh, I have to figure out what I'm going to do in the world. How will I uh, translate all this into the marketplace? And I knew my criteria were really clear. I knew I wanted to do something that would help heal the world and at the same time help me to experience wholeness and happy, full self-expression. So I wanted it to be fun, uh, something I could learn and something that would make a difference. And I was so, you know, I was so naive uh, in a wonderful way and idealistic. I didn't, I really didn't think about money. I did not think about, I mean, I figure if I do something good, it'll be sustainable. And, but just 
just those criteria. It has to help others. It has to be something I will love to do. So I thought of going to medical school. But in those days, they did not have integrative medicine. You just had to study disease, which I really wasn't interested in. So I thought of getting a PhD in clinical psychology. Same thing. You had to study neurosis and psychosis. There was no positive psychology yet. So I, that's, when I, that's when I had my juggling epiphany. I, I became a juggler when I was at Mr. Bennett's school. And it's funny because a previous guest, Dr. Mark, Mark Epstein, Epstein, had, had a, a similar epiphany. thing. Yes. Did, basically, the juggling caused him to relax the thinking mind. So, I, yes, I experienced that and actually then worked my way through graduate school as a professional juggler. And I once juggled live on stage with uh, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones on a Ed, stage. An interpretive juggler? Or on, a, on a stage shaped like Mick Jagger's mouth, no kidding, right on the tip of the tongue at the Nebworth Rock Festival. And actually, you know, I, was, I, taught, I taught Joan London how to juggle on Good Morning America 24 years ago. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you got good enough at juggling to put yourself through grad school. Well, with, you know, my parents helped me, but I, I definitely supplemented my, my grad school education. So what did you decide? I, obviously, the juggling thing was important, but what, what was your professional choice then in terms of grad mm -hmm. school? Uh, I decided to become a teacher of the Alexander Technique. Okay, is, I've heard of this. My brother did it once. Yeah. My son's name is Alexander. Ah. In his case, the technique is taking a poop in your pants. <laughs> Which I'm sure he does effortlessly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's really – he's a natural. He's a natural, yes. right? It's what's all about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. So, uh, yeah, I, I had discovered the Alexander technique. I had a few – Can you explain what it is? Less, sure. It's, it's a method for – developing poise and ease in your everyday movements, which then become becomes particularly relevant if you're a performer of any kind, if you're on stage. It's really a secret of developing stage presence, which is a function of what you don't do. It's what you leave out. It's not, you know, if you're talking like this, we don't want to watch you He's as much. He's moving a lot. Just so you know. <laughs> Right. So it's one of my favorite definitions of it, uh, descriptions of it. Somebody called it the secret of keeping your eye on the ball applied to life. I don't understand that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, so well, it's like juggling. Uh, uh, you have to let go. You can't grasp too much. Uh, and then things find their perfect rhythm. You look at your, your son. How old's your son? Three. Three. Perfect. Okay. So I bet he does everything with amazing energy and a lengthening spine and probably a very expressive face. Mm -hmm. uh, Except for brushing his teeth. Because right. yes, well, yeah, he doesn't want to do that, right? right. Yeah, right. No, the that. things he wants to do yes. are done so naturally with a whole self, uh, a full presence, right. uh, upright poise, a naturalness. This is our birthright. Uh, but then we go to school uh, and into the workplace and we, we slip into what some researchers have called the startle pattern. We, we lose that natural poise. The fear response, what do people do? They tighten their neck muscles, hold their breath. Tighten their shoulders. Uh, tighten their shoulders. Uh, hold, uh, hold 
they hold everything and compress. And this isn't particularly good for your functioning or your stage presence. And if you are in a stressful environment, which most of us are, a stressful job, a stressful relationship, this becomes a habit. We get locked into this startle pattern. It becomes modified form of startle becomes our way of being. And we be, you know, the crooked person who walks the proverbial crooked mile. We lose that natural poise and aliveness. Well, Alexander was a Shakespearean actor who was losing his voice in the middle of performances. He went to all kinds of voice therapists and doctors to help him. They told him vocal rest, all this stuff. None of it worked. Then he said, it must be something I'm doing that's causing the problem. And what he noticed that as soon as he even thought about declaiming a piece from Shakespeare, he started to tighten up, just the very thought of it. So he saw that that pattern then became much more exaggerated when he actually began the soliloquy, for example. So he thought, how can I free myself from this? And he said, they didn't have video back then. This was 1896 in Australia. He set up a system of mirrors and he watched himself in the mirror to see if he could notice what was, where he was going off. And sure enough, as soon as he even thought about speaking, he saw this tendency to just throw his head back a little bit, shorten his neck, and start to raise his chest and tighten his shoulders. So he said, what happens if I let that go? And eventually he learned to let it go while actually doing the passage. And the result was he became renowned for the power of his voice, for his effortless stage presence, and people began to come to him for lessons including a group of doctors who had an amateur theatrical company. And the doctors got the idea, maybe this guy could help some of our patients with chronic stress conditions, breathing problems, and backaches, and so on. And Alexander helped many of them, so much so that the doctors helped sponsor Alexander to go to London, this is 1904, where he soon became known as the protector of the London Theatre because he gave lessons to many of the leading actors and actresses of the day. And you'll find that uh, my colleagues here in New York who teach the Alexander Technique are working with a lot of the people you know, down the road at Lincoln Center and on Broadway. It, it really is a trade secret of high-level performers uh, to have that sense of effortless poise on the stage. But I always thought of it as posture. My ah, brother, my, my younger yeah. brother went, and I remember – he stopped going, so this is not the case anymore. But I remember one day he was in my apartment with his kids, and we walked out to the elevator to go take a walk or something. And I said, what is different about you? And he was just standing taller. And he said, mm. yeah, I've been doing this thing called the Alexander Technique. <laughs> and that's, it's really interesting because I have terrible posture. I have really bad posture. My wife is always on me about this in a good way, pointing out that I'm just crunched, uh, hunched and crunched and – so I always thought of Alexander Technique not so much about stage presence, but primarily about your posture. But, so I have that wrong. Well, the only problem with posture is it tends to be something of a static concept. And you're always – in Tai Chi, we talk about stillness and movement, movement and stillness. So posture is a, tends to be a static concept. Like we think we're frozen into you – know, my eighth-grade algebra teacher would turn and write on the board, and we'd all slump. And she would say, postures, and everybody would – Try to sit up really straight with effort, 
until she turned around again, and then we'd all slump. So posture uh, is not a dynamic or organic uh, uh, concept. Uh, Alexander talked about the use of the self, and he said use affects functioning. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you slump, for example, if you tighten your shoulders, if you hold your breath a little bit, if you stiffen your knees, you'll feel this right away. If you stiffen your knees, it locks down your diaphragm. You can't breathe as well. Even as I'm imitating this, you hear my voice is starting. It's not getting more resonant. So I free myself from that. I breathe a little more. The voice opens up. So the way we use ourselves moment to moment affects our functioning, affects our, our respiration, our ability to think, our ability to be present, which is why if you think about meditation, what's Zen? It's actually the sitting. It's if you can really sit there and be really present, and they never say in Zen, just slouch around, do that. <laughs> I mean, every meditative tradition says effectively align around the vertical axis. Expand into your, your full stature. Be natural like your son. It is you know, this, this renaissance of our birthright. We have this birthright of poise. We have this birthright of almost unlimited energy and wildly fabulous imagination. But people lose touch with that. So, And you think the way you carry yourself, your presence, we're not always on the stage, but let's just say stage presence, impacts the way your mind is operating and vice versa. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, Alexander called it the universal constant in living. So what that means is you're either getting better all the time or you're getting worse all the time. Uh, if you are not aware of how you use yourself. So you are just taking life's traumas, uh, the traumas of everyday life. Uh, the title of a market. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, another juggler. Uh, uh, but every, I love that title because it is the traumas of everyday life that are then reflected in how you tighten your shoulders and, Maybe you think you're defending yourself by sticking your chest out, or maybe you're depressed. And literally, when you're depressed, you're you're depressing your body. Uh, and you know, if if I if you sit at your full stature, if you open out and expand, and it helps to have a little inner smile going on the whole time. Which you know, they, again, what do they say? You know, in meditation, they try to be cool about it. They don't even want to tell you to smile. They just say. Turn the corners of your mouth up. Well, hello. <laughs> By the way, this is what Alexander figured. He said, just think of something funny to smile. Basically, have that free, uh, humorous, playful attitude in, in life. And yes, this affects your, your attitude moment to moment because you, you cannot feel depression if you're aligned around your vertical axis and you lift up the two sides. Really? Of it's try it. I'm not depressed right no, now, yeah. but oh, right. next time but, I'm depressed. Well, next, I'll try it. So in other words, but if, if you, like if we go like, if we both slump together, mm -hmm. it'd be a lot easier to feel if we wanted to feel a depression, 
it's a much easier to do it if we ease up, be more like your, your son, like sitting there like, harder to feel it. Uh, you, you had Amy Cuddy. Uh, you talked to her. Wonderful yes. conversation. So she, Amy Cuddy is famous for her theory around the power pose that, that uh, she, she says her her research suggests that if you strike a powerful pose that actually can help you put you in the right mind state for high performance. Although there have been a lot of questions raised about the quality of her research. Yes. And the – it's both a, I think it's a wonderful thing that she brought a scientific – lens to this people call it the mind body connection as though they're really these two separate things and our language you know sanskrit has all these words that express the wholeness of body and mind and spirit we we don't have we don't have many di- distinctions so we'll just say body mind connection it's great that somebody's putting out this work and making people just aware of it that i've been teaching this by the way for 40 years that before you give a speech Stand in a we. Th- this is thousands of years old, by the way, in, from Qigong and Tai Chi martial arts traditions. Uh, you stand in a any one of uh, a whole range of different poses, and you prepare yourself to be really focused and really get the job done, whatever it happens to be. If it's a meeting you're going into or a, a speech you're about to give, but the 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 only limitation I'd say to the way people are thinking about Amy's wonderful work is what if what if instead of striking the occasional pose when you think you need to raise your game, what if you are raising your game all the time by the way you move from one thing to another, by the way you pick up your and how would that affect your son by the way you pick him up and the quality of your touch and what he's reading uh, unconsciously about your energy and your body language and your sense of well-being. So my passion's uh, how to integrate that into our everyday lives because then also, then it's really there when you need it. Uh, you know, what I actually really, uh, way, going way ahead in the story, what I actually mostly do f- for money is I give speeches around the world. Uh, to sometimes very large group. You and I spoke at the same uh, conference uh, for MWE, the law firm. I was the day before you. I don't remember this. Yeah. <laughs> I do a lot of speeches. Yeah, no, I know you yeah, do. Yeah. Uh, uh, so do I. But uh, I just remember that you were there. And I said, oh, the 10% happier guy is there. because uh, I. So I was the day before. So you know what that's like. Yes. Uh, yeah, and you're, it's one thing to be on stage, and, and but it's also you're going to the airport. Uh, you're getting to your hotel. Uh, it's not that glamorous, uh, that part of it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, you just put out all this energy. You get all the you – know, people love you. Great. You get the big applause even from – I think we did both did pretty well with the attorneys. <laughs> I heard the – you know, uh, tough crowd, but we want them over. But it's not, it's not just all the part that is on stage and on the lights. It's how do you comport yourself? How are you utilizing your energy? What's the quality of your being uh, as you go through all these different moments and scenes and roles that you're playing? And Alexander Technique is one of the most just magnificent, wonderful. I wish everybody. I'm. I'm. You know, I want everybody to know about it. Uh, 
Well, I, I, because I, I'm, let's yeah. describe it because I don't know that people are going to understand. So how does it work? You you go into a place where they're teaching it and somebody like tinkers with your posture and shows you how to do it. What's the deal? Yeah. <laughs> People go for different reasons, so the deal is a little different. You know, if if like they teach it at the Juilliard School, uh, around the corner. Uh, so if you're a violinist and you're raising your shoulder uh, a little bit uh, more than you need to and tightening your neck, we can hear it in the sound. So, Alexander, uh, teacher will work with you and help you become aware of what you're doing. How? Partly verbally and partly through the subtlest, most elegant, uh, gentle touch that kind of gives you this little suggestion of, it's a reminder of what it was like when you were naturally poised. I'm really interested in this because, you know, I've noticed that I lack grace in my movements. I, I had the distinct I hosted a failed game show on ABC News, and, and <laughs> as part of as this game, yeah. I watched the game show when it was airing. It, it never aired again after it um, a couple of years ago, and uh, it's called Five Hundred Questions. I think you can see it on mm. YouTube. Anyway, and I watched the show, and I and this was really the first time where I could actually see myself walking around a large space, and it just seemed like I, I, I just I did there was. I, no grace. I mean, and, and then I go to Soul Cycle, the spin class sure, with my sure. wife, and my wife's next to me, and she's so graceful, and I'm like a rutting moose that's been strapped <laughs> into the bike. It's just a mountain goat or something like that. And, you know, sweating, and and my I'm hunched over. And so I'm really intrigued by the notion of uh, the Alexander Technique, and I believe, and I'm sure you're going to get to this, that there's a big overlap between mindfulness and how you carry yourself, because one requires the, uh, the how you carry yourself requires that you remember. Yes, yes, yes. It, it, it's it's a missing link for a lot of a lot of people. You know, they go to their meditation class, they sit on their cushion, and hopefully they have a experience of well being and uh, freedom, and their mind settles down a little bit, and that's wonderfully restorative. But you're going to spend much more of your life outside of that meditation class or that yoga class. So what's your yoga? What's your mindfulness? What's your meditation of brushing your teeth, of driving your car, of getting in the subway, of cutting a carrot, of going to soul cycle, of doing everything you do? But you have to keep going, right? Because my brother went a couple times, and I could really see yeah, it in the yeah. way he carried it. And then he stopped going, and now he's a schmo like me. Yeah, well, it's, right. So it's. I hope he's listening. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, it's just you, know, you can't take a couple lessons and okay, now I, I mastered meditation. Thanks a lot. Uh, it's a life practice. Uh, uh, poise is a life practice. Alexander is the most uh, elegant, efficient. And you know, here's the thing. I got to tell you something else. I just, just, I, I still only really like to do things because they feel really good. <laughs> and it feels so much better to move gracefully in the course of your, of your life. I mean, I, you know, I started, I was on the high school wrestling team. I played basketball. I was on the tennis team and I was on the soccer team. You know, and I had that kind of athletic carriage, and I, that just disappeared. It just melted off. 
uh, as I went and had Alexander uh, lesson. I can still, it actually made me much more athletic, uh, much better able to learn uh, various uh, performance arts, a juggling, for example. I mean, I got, I got really good as a juggler. I could, you know, I could juggle five balls. I juggled flaming clubs. Uh, never, uh, you know, no animals were harmed in the making of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and then I realized that uh, I wanted to bring this to, to people who might not normally experience it because, you know, they, so they teach this at the Juilliard School. They teach this at the Royal Academy of Music, the Royal Academy of Drama, it's 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 woven into the fabric of professional performance schools because these people the difference between tightening your shoulder and your neck while playing your violin and not is the difference between you sounding mm, a little scratchy and the tone being pure and and you don't have to be a sophisticated music lover to hear that uh, you can you you can do it before and after Alexander Demis. You'll hear it in a singer. You'll see it in a dancer. You can even see it in a, in a, in a juggler. But I thought it might be useful to people who are in leadership positions. And I created a company, my first company, in 1978 called Self Management. And my thought was I'll go into the offices. So instead of them coming to the Alexander Technique studio, I'll go to your office and I'll watch you. And I brought, actually, I brought the sketch artist with me to sketch the flow of your movement. Right. Now and, you just need an iPhone. Right. There's no iPhones back then. And I, we took Polaroid pictures. And then I'd give you or, or the person a report uh, on how they use themselves. And then I'd give them a lesson and we'd walk through the things they did and give them the experience of doing them with with more ease, with more it just feels better. They know it right away. It's like, it's like so effortless. So that particular fellow was a high-level management consultant, and he was doing a seminar in Veve, Switzerland, for the senior leadership team of Digital Equipment Corporation. And he invited me to come. And he said, would you teach them what you taught me and maybe teach them some juggling and some of the other things that I had been studying. So I went along. I had no clue about business at all, but I, I shared this with them and I taught the meditation, which was not something anybody knew anything about then really at all. Uh, there was no you know, mindfulness movement or whatever. So what's he doing? But they liked it. Uh, and the head of HR for uh, digital said, we want this young American guy on all our programs around the world. So all of a sudden, I'm in my late 20s and I'm flying all over the world leading, it was called the Mind and Body Seminar hmm. uh, for people twice my age. And now I'm doing that for people half my age. <laughs> but I guess, you know, I mean, I have, I have more energy and passion and love for what I do uh, now than ever before, I feel amazingly blessed. But but this, these worlds in which you move, and yeah. uh, not just you, but just the, the 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 people to whom the Alexander technique is generally available. I mean, we're talking about elite performers, and in your case, C-suite occupants and uh, executives and people in business. How does a regular person learn how to have more poise and better posture? 
Well, save your money. Go have Alexander lessons. Go to you know they, the teachers teaching. They're it's not all over expensive. the place, right? It's all over the place. It's not that expensive. And when you consider what you know, I tell people about anything like this. When, why should I spend my money on Alexander technique on uh, Tai Chi lessons on meditation lessons? If it doesn't work, you wasted your money. If it does work, it's the best investment you ever made. So, you know, if there was something that could make you 10% happier, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or 100% happier, uh, and if you didn't have back pain, uh, which is often for most of us caused by how we use ourselves. It's caused by the inordinate pressure we put on our our lower backs because we're out of balance. You know, your head on average weighs about 15 pounds. If it's out of kilter, which it is if you're stressed and in that modified startle pattern, that's the constant pressure of 15 pounds pressing down on your spine. And then it's worse with anytime you do anything challenging or difficult, you pick up your son, uh, you uh, brush your teeth, you drive your car, you do these everyday things, but they're slowly straining you to the point that then someday you say, oh, my back hurts. Oh, I threw my back out. So this is why this is about an approach to what you do every day. And it's, it's once again, it's pleasurable. And you know, go have some lessons. Uh, there are teachers everywhere. Uh, that's why you know, I wrote the book I brought you. is called Body Learning, An Introduction to the Alexander Technique. And it was my master's thesis. But you can't just read the book and, and nail it, right? You need No, to- you need – I. There's people now because the world is the way it is. There are people doing Skype lessons and coaching, and and you can you can help. It's mindfulness in, in the flow of movement. So yes, you can help people and coach them. If I, I can watch somebody, I can talk to them and I could help them. But look, I trained for three years full time as an Alexander Technique teacher, and then I did two years of an internship to learn to get my balance and my nervous system harmonized enough that if I put my hands on somebody, it's going to give them this uplifting, integrating stimulus. So you don't, you just don't want to miss that part of it. (laughs) Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. 
So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning, we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Now, you have other areas of professional interest, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've written and spoken quite a bit about creativity. Yes. And and I believe you incorporate mindfulness into that. Yes. Am I right about that? Yes, you are. So that's actually something we have not discussed much on the podcast, so I'd love to hear you just hold forth, if you will, on, <laughs> on how the, that sure. interconnection sure. works. Well, my as I explained earlier, my my first awareness was of the importance of awareness and that that was kind of the fuel or the, the, the space out of which everything could be created. Let me just stop that for a second because sometimes the word awareness is tricky because we talk about drug awareness or mental health uh, awareness. Yeah, 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 right. And that just means knowing <laughs> that a thing is a thing or some, whatever. But when you talk about awareness, you're talking about the fact that the lights are on for us internally, that we mm-hmm. have consciousness, yes. that we know anything at all, that we experience anything yes. at all. Yes, yes. That, that, that's my fascination with the source of awareness and how to be aligned with that source of awareness. I mean, it is the great mystery. It's the great, it's the great most wonderful mystery. So we know that we know stuff. In other words, I know right. that I see you. Yes. But I don't know. I can't find what is knowing. I can look, I can look, what's, what is knowing the sound of your voice? What is knowing the, the light on your visage right now? Mm-hmm. But I can't find it. And this who's is the a, eye? Who's the knower? Who's, who's the eye even right. looking for the knower? You know, I mean, so it, it, this is a really interesting rabbit hole to go down. Well, when, well, so when you, in your conversation with Mark Epstein, I love when he said he was talking about his father, who's a physician and he had brain cancer and Mark said, okay, I got to you know, try to get through to my dad, who's a scientific materialist, this notion of consciousness, just because I'll feel bad if I don't. You know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I got to get him ready for this journey. So Mark said, you know, so, you know, I called up my dad and I kind of apologized. I said, look, you know that part of you that uh, you just relate to as yourself that you've always known that hasn't changed. If you think about your earliest memory, it was there when you were 30. It was there when you were, your earliest memory. It's there right now. It was there last time I saw you. That sense of the one constant, right? Because we know our thoughts are changing and our emotions are changing and the body is clearly changing. So this, but the sense I am is there's a continuity. So Mark said to his dad, so, you know, the, the advice that, that, is given as as one makes this transition is uh, as you feel yourself going, you know, ride that out, ride out on that that stream. Well, don't wait till you're riding out. <laughs> we want to ride that stream. That is the stream. So, all, all streams are, are tributaries <laughs> from that that stream. So that. That was my 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 first interest, and then it appears that 
somehow out of that, we give rise to the 10,000 things, to the phenomenon of what we call creation. So we're interested in creation. It's kind of natural to be interested in creativity. Well, sorry, sorry. So out of whatever the source of consciousness is, everything's coming out of that, mm-hmm. you're saying. I mean... That's a metaphysical yeah, claim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm not claiming it. I'm curious about it, and I'm exploring okay. it. And I'm, I'm just like, okay, so... I mean, I continue to explore all of this. And so it seemed to me, going back to the world being crazy as it was then, as it is now, and helping people have better conversations, uh, come up with better solutions, that seemed to me a very practical way to take all this uh, study of consciousness and, uh, and, and self-awareness and shift it into helping people with real issues. And so I started to study uh, creative thinking and, you know, how do you generate more ideas in less time and make better connections between those ideas? What's the research on that? There's a a lot, you know, the Torrance work at uh, Stanford. It's been burgeoning in the last 40 years since I started this, but I was lucky enough to meet and work with very closely some of the people who are pioneers in this, in this field. Uh, The guy I was traveling around teaching that mind body seminar with was one of the big pioneers. He invented mind mapping, uh, this method for generating and organizing ideas that integrates the artistic and imaginative part of your mind with the logical and analytical part of your mind. And we teach this to these corporate executives and help them use it to write their strategic plan. And they said, that's amazing. We're doing this in half the time. And it was so much more fun and we had better ideas. Mm. So you know, this this is so-called reality test. Uh, this is not theoretical. This is in companies seeing if we could really help people be more creative in, in, in dealing with these, these solutions. So uh, I more and more was asked to teach people how to mind map, uh, how to think creatively, how to generate more ideas. Uh, you know, it, to this day, people still call me up and say, can you help us think? Out of the box. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, in those in those uh, sessions, uh, I used to reference Leonardo da Vinci because my grandmother was an Italian painter, and she told me about Leonardo when I was very young, and he became one of my heroes along with Superman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember when I realized that. Superman was only a comic book character, but Leonardo was real. So it, it was 1994, and I was speaking, I was actually speaking in New York at the Plaza Hotel uh, to Young Presidents Organization, this global group of company presidents. And I was speaking to them about creativity and innovation. And I found out that they were holding one of their elite premier events, they call them universities, in Florence, which is my favorite city. So I really wanted to get invited. <laughs> so fellow comes up to me, says, if we were to invite you to Florence, what would you do? I said, we want something really special. So in the moment, I made up, how about how to think like Leonardo da Vinci? And he says, can you really do that? And I said, sure. <laughs> so I had six months to make this baby up. And this is a really notoriously tough crowd. 
you know, when you speak to them, you've probably spoken to groups like this where they rate you on a scale of one to 10. If you get below an eight, you never get invited back. And if you get above a nine, you're in the in crowd and you get to speak to them all over the world. So it just, you know, and they, they don't, they don't, they just look at you with a deadpan face. Their arms are folded. It's like, prove it. Show me what you got. It's a tough, tough, but they're the best. Once you, you get through to them. So I, I mean, I literally went to Leonardo's birthplace. Uh, I went to the place he died. I literally walked in his footsteps. I read uh, his notebooks over and over again. I meditated in front of his works of art. Uh, I started having dreams. Uh, and from these dreams, I came up with these seven principles for thinking like Leonardo da Vinci, which I delivered in Florence. And it was actually pretty funny because I sent in, I'd written a little paper on the seven principles for thinking like Leonardo. And I also sent in my biography so the person could introduce me. The person introducing me confused the two documents. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, members and guests, here at the Young Presidents Organization, we've had many extraordinary resources, but never have I had the privilege and the pleasure of introducing someone with a resume like this. Anatomist, architect, <laughs> botanist, city planner, <laughs> designer, engineer, painter, sculptor, Michael Yelp. Anyway, uh, that uh, led to a book that actually, I can't believe it came out 20 years ago, uh, called How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Seven Steps to Genius Every Day. Big promise. Well, all I can tell you is uh, my favorite, uh, I've heard, I still hear from people all over the world. It's in 25 languages, and it's really struck a chord with people. But the favorite thing somebody said is, this book gave me everything I always wanted to teach my children, but didn't have the words to say. Mm. Because what, what if uh, – uh, and the promise is, 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 can be delivered only because I, I read Leonardo's notebooks over and over again, and I put myself in the mind uh, set. The, the question was, what's he trying to teach us? And he gives actual advice to his students on how to be more creative. He, tell, he tells them what to do. So what I did was just translate this into contemporary language. And then, because I've been leading workshops and seminars for – many, many years, I made up exercises that would bring the principle to life. How, how, if at all, do you think meditation helps with creativity? Well, you know, I asked, uh, I asked Richie Davidson. A prim- uh, prominent neuroscientist, yeah, yeah. previous twice guest on this show. But he, by the way, you know, when, so when I, times, maybe. I was telling you about the being at Mr. Bennett's school uh-huh. and doing all this meditation. When I, when I came back, I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I used to juggle in Harvard Square. And this friend of mine, Rick Margolin, who's a physician, brought me over to Harvard. And there's this guy, Richie Davidson, there. And I think Dan Goleman was there, too. And they put electrodes on my brain and asked me to meditate. I don't know if they still have the the data from that very early. (laughs) Uh, But I I asked – I interviewed Richie for one of my previous books. Uh, about the relationship between meditation and creativity, because you know, I just, of course, intuitively, instantly assume, well, hello, but I like to you know, back it up. So I figured, let's reach out to Rich and see what he, he says. And he says the research is, you know, it's still pretty early. It's not all that clear because they're they're too busy studying uh, the efficacy of meditation for. You know, helping uh, cardiovascular disease, and depression, and, and depression, anxiety. and anxiety, and 
Uh, so I think they'll get around more and more to to creativity. Uh, but if you if you study great creative breakthroughs, they're similar to enlightenment experiences. Uh, uh, they don't happen in the office. Uh, they don't happen in the lab or on the computer. They have. I've asked, and I've, and even just leave aside great geniuses, just ordinary people. I ask this question to groups around the world. I say, where are you physically located when you get your best ideas? Right, where are you? Mostly walking. Walking. So it's, it's walking. It's in the shower, the bath. Mm-hmm. A lot of times driving in my car. Uh, some people uh, say it's uh, when I'm done at the gym. Also meditating. And meditating. Yes. Right? Huge. 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 Right? Nobody ever says I get my best ideas in the office. Uh, they're all times when we are usually by ourselves, so we don't have the fear of embarrassment of thinking or saying something that's outside of the norm. And they're all activities that shift the brain from a more active beta state, which we're in at work and conversing with other people, to an alpha or a theta state, so slower brain waves. So we're, basically we're relaxed and we're by ourselves. Well, that's you can see why I, I naturally have a sense that meditation is – It's training you to get training into the states yeah, or whatever. It's, it's, yeah. That's what we know. And, and you read the sages and they're all saying, you know, you want to have the breakthrough idea, meditate. I, I, I love though. I mean I've, I've been on meditation retreats where I'm just – it's a tsunami of ideas. And then I've gotten home and looked at my notebooks and they were all horrible ideas. So it's not a guarantee. It's just an interesting – I mean you will – I think you'll get a lot of stuff that comes up. Like once you – once the chattering mind slows yeah. down, it, creativity – there's more room for creativity. It's just there's no – It's you don't know – you might not get the meal you ordered. Uh, uh, well, that's what makes it creative is you won't get the meal you ordered. You'll come up with a whole new recipe and new flavors. Yes, yeah, sometimes it's a terrible recipe. Sometimes it may be. However uh, – uh, like whoever came up with turducken. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Uh, uh, but when you, when you, in your own process, uh, you get these ideas and they seem like crazy ideas. Uh, but when we re- if we read about you know, Einstein's experience of his own ideas or Leonardo's experiences of his ideas, or uh, Edison, you go back and, and find a great mind uh, – they all give you the same advice. So I like, you know, I like this. Like every meditation tradition says start by aligning around the vertical axis. Probably something to it. You know, if if that's what they're telling you in China, China India, every tradition, the Kabbalists. Uh, nobody says start by slumping or, or you know, tightening your jaw or something. It's univer- it tends to be a universal discovery. Well, guess what? Uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci tells his students, uh, uh, wherever you go, carry a little notebook with you. And when something occurs to you, write it down. And don't worry about whether it makes sense or not. Uh, Edison gives pretty much the same instruction to uh, the people who work in his laboratory. And be careful of premature organization. So in other words, you look at the seemingly inter uh, not connected crummy ideas, you've judged them and you've dismissed them and then you miss 
the potential of what may emerge as you play with them and let them flow together. Mm-hmm. Now, they still may ultimately not be a breakthrough idea. Uh, you, know, you probably have to come up with a thousand ideas to get a real breakthrough idea. But that one idea is a product of the other 999 seemingly silly or irrelevant ideas. So the ability to to ride that uh, uncertainty, uh, to uh, become comfortable with the ambiguity of not knowing. And again, meditation is training your whole being to be more receptive to that state. You know, my view, look, we're antennas, uh, but we, we, we're filled with static and we're not getting good reception. Geniuses have cleared out the static and they're getting good reception. One way I think about meditation is, okay, let's tune the antenna. I love that. I feel like there are a million other things we could talk to you about, but uh, we're pretty much out of time. Let me finish by doing what I like to, the opportunity I like to give every guest, which is, I call it the plug zone. Ah. Let's plug everything you've ever done. Give me all the books that you want people to know about. Where can we find you on social media, the internets, all Thank that. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's michaelgelb.com, G-E-L-B. Look for How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Seven Steps to Genius Every Day. That's my best-known book. My first book, Body Learning, An Introduction to the Alexander Technique. And my most recent book is called The Art of Connection, Seven Relationship-Building Skills Every Leader Needs Now. Well, now I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't we didn't talk. About, I didn't even know about this recent <laughs> book. So can you just give me? Can you give me the the headline, the takeaway? Sure. On the, yeah, the, on the, the takeaway of that one is. Uh, so, I'm teaching people how to think like Leonardo, innovate like Edison, creativity and innovation, work with businesses around the world, and I don't just give a talk or a seminar and fly off. Uh, clients put me on retainer. I work with them over years. I help them write their their plan, their vision, their mission, their their values and then navigate through how you really make an innovative culture and, and, and promote a workforce that makes people love coming to work and love what they do and love who they serve and love their teammates and their vendors. And this is my passion is to help uh, be part of uh, creating that kind of, of place for people to work. So what, I, what I've noticed, I've been paying attention all along, is getting the breakthrough ideas is actually the easy part. Implementing them is the challenging part. That's why I wrote The Art of Connection because it's, it's the most important things I've learned about how do you build relationships with yourself, with others that will help you actually navigate through the objections to change, the resistance people have to innovation and creativity. So it's, it's the playbook for how do you really make this happen in the world where people aren't always so open to change and innovation? Well, I would call that book, Why Won't Everybody Just Do What I Want Them To? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> but that's part of the problem is that's the way we feel. <laughs> yeah, I've just expressed. Yeah, I've just yeah, crystallized yeah. the problem. Yes, thank you. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for you. Right, yeah. yeah. Good, good, man. So what is uh, – just one more yeah, question. sure, sure. For, for those of us, we all live in an interconnected world, whether yes. we're in a corporation or uh, a family or uh, some sort of nonprofit, we need to work collaboratively. Mm-hmm. So get, get, 
and given that a lot of the people listening to this do have a meditation, sure. at least a, uh, if not a background, at least some curiosity in it, what would you say from what you learned would be the, the most uh, meditative technique mm. to this? Mm. Well, first of all, emotions are contagious for better or for worse. So decide what you want to catch and what you want to spread. And when you get that, that your state is rippling out for better or worse, uh, and when you get people becoming aware of that. You know, so I was – I have a client in New Jersey. They started by remediating asbestos. And now they do risk management and engineering. They're brilliant. Uh, Hillman Consulting, great people. And I've been on retainer to them for a couple of years. And I just led their second uh, strategic planning retreat uh, under my supervision. So I thought it was time to introduce a wellness program for them because a lot of their senior leaders were struggling with stress and uh, various stress-related ailments. One of them had a heart attack. And so we're helping them have better, healthier food, and the CEO, who's just a fabulous guy, immediately says, let's get pay for gym memberships and, and help. And then, so the last retreat, I taught a meditation. And this is something also about how the world has changed today. It's something so exciting and wonderful to me. So we had just a, two or three short meditation classes. And just I had I just had to meditate for five minutes, just to feel get the toe in the pool sort of thing. So in the last morning, I sat down. We were going to do uh, we do a thing at the end of these meetings where everybody stands up and they say what they're going to do exactly and by when it will be accomplished. So it's real accountability. Like, okay, I'm going to do this specifically. Here's how we'll measure that I did it, and it will be done by this date. So these are all the things we've, all the creative fun stuff we've been working on. It's now, okay, let's figure out how this is really going to manifest. But just before we did that, I thought, I'll review meditation with them. So I sat down and, you know, before I, I mean, I, I aim to be flowing in that stream all the time, but there's a special responsibility that comes if you're now saying, okay, I'm going to lead this class. So I was about to, begin repeating the instructions for meditation, explain what I was going to do, but I didn't have to. They all were quiet and there was a silence in the space. And I felt this sense of there's an intelligence here that's greater than the sum of the parts of the individual bodies in the room. And I sense that it's it's just so different than when I first taught meditation 40 years ago. I don't think that would have happened uh, in, a, in a corporate room. But people, you know, the, the zeitgeist has shifted. And with all of our difficulties, uh, there's more geist in the zeit. <laughs> Lovely. Great place to end it. Um, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, 
and I hope you do. Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.